You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. Rams fans, let's hear it. Patriots fans, let's hear it. We are in Colts country, aren't we? Rams fans who really just hate the Patriots, let's hear it. That's what I thought. That's kind of what I thought. (laughs) Well, I hadn't planned on starting that way, but today's message will fit in so many different ways. Have you ever had your friends throw a party or a get-together or gathering and not invite you? I said this in our 8 a.m. gathering, and somebody said, well, how would I know? (laughs) Oh, we know, don't we? (laughs) Because there's literally something today called FOMO. Have you guys heard of FOMO? If not, your teenagers have. FOMO stands for fear of missing out, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. And social media has made this worse. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, we see people all the time, our friends getting together, and we immediately think, well, why didn't they invite me? Which then immediately makes us think what? Well, what's wrong with me? There's something wrong with me. They didn't invite me. It had nothing to do with maybe they ran into each other and had a conversation, or maybe this was in the plans months ago. We immediately think something's wrong with us. So that now, if we know our friends are getting together and we don't see or hear something about it, there's actually a new term called MOMO. (laughs) MOMO stands for the mystery of missing out. It's when you know your friends have gotten together and they're not talking about it. And you're wondering, what's wrong with you? You're not even cool enough not to be invited to the party, but you're not even cool enough to hear what happened at the party. And you wonder why we are all on medicine today. But it's a true story. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but the Bible is full of parties. If you go all the way back into the Old Testament, the Hebrew people, they knew how to party. They didn't just do wedding get-togethers that took an hour or two and everybody rushing to get out of there and go home and go about their lives. Their wedding parties took a week. And when the Lord uh, put feasts in place, they could last a day, a week, a month. I mean, these were big deals. God wanted his people to be full of celebration. It's why in the book of John, we see the very first miracle of Jesus takes part at a wedding party. That's why in Revelation, also John's book, ironically, we hear about this great big wedding party. Parties are part of the Bible. It's part of the story of the people of God, and it's part of today's text. So if you will, turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 5. We're going to see a party. The problem is we don't get a lot of details about the party, but don't worry, I'll make them up for you. (laughs) Luke, chapter 5, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. A few things that we note here, this is pretty much the end of the story. Now, people like myself, and I think it's just modern day readers in general, we want to know what's going on here. Like, what's the backstory? And we really don't have a lot. But what little we have, I'll fill in for you. So if you go, and you don't have to do this right now, but if you go to Matthew chapter 8, you will see the same story told in Matthew 8. And in verse 8, we learn that the guy's name isn't Levi, but his name is Matthew. And the guy who wrote the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four gospels. The one who wrote Matthew is the same Levi referenced here. Are you confused yet? 
This is somewhat normal for people when they meet Jesus, they start going by a different name. That's not true for everybody. But in many parts of the world today, say in places like India, where they were named after some of the Hindu gods, they will change their name when they become Christians to something that reflects their faith. And so in this situation, we're not 100% sure all the details, but Levi, also called Matthew. Again, it could be a name change thing or it could just be, it's his middle name. So those are synonymous. Matthew literally means a gift from God, but of course it does, which could be why he goes by that name. That's my name for those of you visiting, and it's a joke. I'm not that arrogant. Depends on who you talk to. But, all right, so, man, I'm on it today. I don't know what the deal is. All right. So Jesus walks up to Levi, Matthew, and he says, come follow me. Where did he walk up to him at? Well, in that day, they had these little tax collecting booths and people were expected or required to pay their taxes. And they would literally come up to the booth, meet the tax collector and pay the taxes. Now, the way this worked was since Rome was the group people who were in leadership, they had taken over almost all of the known world at the time. And the Israelites were a part of that there in Jerusalem. So Matthew, we're going to call him back and forth, right? Just get that because I'll probably slip. Matthew was hired by Rome to collect taxes from his own people. So he was a Jewish man, but he was collecting taxes. Now, he could have worked directly for Herod, or he could have worked for Rome. Kind of irrelevant, doesn't really matter. Herod would have been the Jewish leader put over kind of ruling this area by Rome. In a lot of ways, he was a puppet figurehead. But Rome had their taxes, Herod could have his taxes, and then the tax collector could have their taxes. Now, tax collectors have never been overly appreciated throughout all time. This is not new, right? It's coming up. Some of you have started that process now. Nobody loves tax season. Nobody loves tax season. I'm guessing tax people don't love tax season. But in this day, it was worse. Because not only were Rome's laws uh, taxing, literally oppressive, but then whatever the tax collector wanted to put on top of that could be backbreaking. We aren't talking about people who had two homes and three cars and 14 donkeys. We're talking about people who didn't have a lot of resources and yet were required to give a significant amount away. And the tax collector at the booth could charge whatever he wanted to charge. Now you can understand a little bit why people hated them. They were traitors because they were one of us, but working for the enemy. They were greedy because they would charge us more than they had to in order to get rich themselves, and they were usually oppressive. And yet Jesus walks right up to the booth. He says, follow me. And he did. Well, this is radical for a lot of reasons. There's really no great way for me to put into context just how radical this is. So I'm going to help you put it in context for you. Right now, I want you to picture in your mind whatever name of a person or perhaps a people group or perhaps a um, struggle or sin that you believe is the most offensive to God. If I were to ask you, tell me the kind of person or the name of a person you think is the most detrimental to our society, maybe even to our world as a whole. You might name a country. You might name a political view. You might name, name a, a, a sin. You might name a color of skin. 
I don't know for you. I don't know where you're going to have that in your heart. So whoever that name or that thing or that person or that people group is that you've got in your mind, that was how everybody viewed this guy in his day. I can't make that point strong enough. Throughout the Gospels, and especially the book of Luke, we see tax collectors and other sinners, tax collectors and the immoral, listed as two separate categories. These are the worst of the worst sinners. Everybody knows it because of look at what they did. And then there's tax collectors also. It's as if they're saying they're their own category of sinner. That's how people viewed him. And Jesus walks right up to him. And he says, you want to come to my party? As a pastor, by the way, I will celebrate later this year in September, 10 years at Kingsway and 20 years in ministry. I'm pretty stoked about that. No, you don't clap for me. You don't even that. Okay, okay. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But in 20 years, you know one of the most common things I hear? So maybe some of you watching online right now or, or sitting in here have, have wondered this too. You know, the reason I don't go to church, Pastor, why? Because if I went in, that building would burn to the ground. And we're laughing because we've thought it or we know people who've thought it, and it just sounds so silly. Because if you knew the people already sitting in here, trust me, it had already burnt to the ground. <laughs> and that's just the band. Like, <laughs> I'm innocent. What is it about Jesus that makes sinful, broken people feel safe? Have you ever wondered that? I wish I knew. There's, there's got to be a backstory, right? Somehow this guy had to have heard enough about Jesus. The rumor mill had to have spread enough that he knew there was something special or unique. So then when Jesus walks up and says, hey, come on. I got a plan for your life. This guy's like, Okay. Now, when he walked away from the tax collecting booth, that clearly meant something. It meant that he was walking away from his profession. It meant that he was walking away from his income. It meant that he was walking away from everything he'd ever known. He became one of the 12 disciples. There were many disciples. Jesus had over 100. But it, later, he would become one of the apostles. He would actually write one of the best gospel books, one of the four best and the reason I say that is his gospel book is so full of Old Testament texts. He goes into such great detail to help the other Jewish people understand just how life-changing Jesus was. There was something about who Jesus was that made him feel not only safe but called into something profound. I love the way that uh, N.T. Wright says this. He says, what Jesus is doing is putting into effect the new world that God is bringing about. In the old ways, they just don't fit. They're obsolete, not because they were bad in themselves, but because God's new age has new power, new possibilities, and new hope that simply weren't there before. See, I, this is where I'm going off script a little bit. Over the last couple months, I've read some books, and I gotta be honest, I do not agree with everything in them. So I'm partially afraid to tell you to go read them because if you go read these books and you, go, you don't have necessarily the, the training that I have that, to, to understand and think and wrestle through these things, you may just go with everything that's said in a book, right? And we all know that's not necessarily wise. I also accept that I could be wrong and these great Christian men could be right. But two books in particular have wrecked me recently. 
One is by Francis Chan. It's called Letters to the Church. I recommend it. The other one is called Irresistible by a guy named Andy Stanley. I recommend it. Both of them, I have things where I strongly disagree. I'd love to sit down and talk with them about it and point out the places that they're wrong. And I'm sure (laughs) they would love to do the same with me. But I know this. Both of them are making this profound point. That the church of God, if nothing else, ought to be known by its love. So why is it that the church in America seems to be losing so much ground. This little fledgling group of people in the New Testament starts with just a handful, but by 300 or so AD has gained enough momentum that Constantine names Christianity the national religion. That's huge. Now, if you know history, Constantine claims that he has a vision from God. And I can't speak to that. I wasn't there that night. I wasn't even there in the world yet. But something happened. Many historians believe Constantine is just being a wise politician because roughly over 55%, over 50%, probably close to 55% of Rome is Christian at that point. Well, if you have the majority of your people as Christian, it just makes sense to name it the national religion, especially if you want to go to war and you need everybody to support you. So I don't know if he did or he didn't, but at least it tells me this. In roughly 300 years, the first Christians changed the world. And why would it change the world? What is so radical and different about Jesus than everything else? As I think N.T. Wright said so clearly, this is new. This isn't the Old Testament way of doing things. This is a new way, a new covenant, one that is based off freedom, one that is based off peace, one that is based off joy, one that is truly based in love, caring for, sacrificing for everybody else instead of only for self. And when the people got it, it changed the way they lived and it changed the way everybody else saw God. In fact, take a look with me for a minute. Luke chapter five. Verse 29, then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Okay, so first of all, this guy just quit his job and spent a bunch of money. Usually you want to do one or the other. (laughs) Doing both together doesn't add up, but it did for him. Because he met Jesus, and there was something radical and profound about Jesus. And he's like, I just got to tell my friends. Now, what's going on here is nobody in the world is inviting these guys to a party. Nobody. Nobody wants them to come. These are the hated, the worst of the worst. I mean, they may not be the most immoral, but they couldn't stand them. I wouldn't have them to my house for anything. Who is that in your life? Who is it in our world, in our community, in your circle of influence that everybody else wants nothing to do with? Because what Levi does is he says, I'm going to get them all together. And I'm going to spend a bunch of money and a bunch of time because I want them to know what I know, to meet who I've met, to experience what I've experienced. Another particular pastor, a guy named Hugh Holter, has really challenged my thinking on a lot of things over the last couple years as I've read his books. He says this, 
When asked about the one true key to bringing people far from God near, I simply say, start throwing great parties. I don't mean to sound trite or even edgy. Literally every friend I have helped find, every friend I have helped find Jesus first got invited to our home for a party. Hugh Holzer, he's kind of doing the whole church thing different. So he has a mostly full-time job and he pastors only on the weekends, basically. My, my sister tells me all the time that uh, I only work on Sundays anyway. So I think it's probably not hard to make the model work, but apparently it wasn't as funny as I thought. I, I lost my edge. Rams, go Rams! Just kidding. But what Hugh does is he gathers people, he teaches but then he spends the rest of his time having a real job. And then what he does to draw people to his church is they just throw really big parties. There was actually a guy and his family goes here. Uh, his name is Ryan Sudsbury. And Ryan is a church planter. And Ryan planted a church in Tampa, Florida. And it grew and did well. And then God called him to Scotland. So he went to Scotland where the gospel is not completely dead, but pretty close. It's just churches are doing terrible there. And he went over there and he planted a church. And within the first year, things were going so well that that church planted another church. Till finally, a church planting organization called him and said, look, we're, we're going to do some things down in the Dominican Republic and in, in that part of the world. Would you come and join us? And now they're trying to launch hundreds of thousands of churches down there. And so one day he was in town visiting family and I took him out for coffee and called him on the phone. And later I said, tell me what you do. How is it you are so successfully reaching people far from God? People who would never step foot in a church. And he said, Matt, it's very simple. We throw great parties. I said, what do you mean? Now look, I realize some of what I'm about to say may be controversial for some of you. So I'm only telling you what I heard. <laughs> See what I did there? Ryan said, Matt, we throw the best parties in town. So what we do is we have a Bible study I believe he said every Thursday or every other Thursday, I don't remember. And then what we do is we throw parties once or twice a month. We bring in the best steaks, the best burgers, the best ribs. We bring in craft soda, craft beer, and we just invite people to come and party with us. There's no strings attached. We don't hand them tracks. We don't preach to them. We just simply say, come and have fun with us. And they show up. And at first, it's like, well, why would I come there? Well, we're going to have da 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 da. Well, okay, we're going to have that, you know. And people show up and they just socialize, they have fun. And every once in a while, people start asking questions like, why, why do you do this? Like, what's the point? And he says, I pretty much use the same kind of line over and over and over again. It goes something like this. We believe in the God of parties. <laughs> he just loves to throw parties. He loves joy. And you know what? He loves you. He loves you a lot. And so we believe since God loves you a lot and God loves parties, then we're going to love you a lot and we're going to love parties and we're just going to throw parties and have people over. And anytime we're having one of these, you are welcome to come. He said, and every once in a while, people say, wow, that's kind of crazy. Like, that sounds fun. Like, usually when I think about God, I don't want to have the conversation, but the way you talk about it, I'm open to it. And then if that conversation comes up, he says, well, you know, there's a bunch of us that gather actually to open the Bible and kind of wrestle with who this God is a little better on Thursdays. If you ever want to come, let me know. And crazy people come. So they first hang out, have fun, socialize, get to know people, and then they invite them just to ask questions and open the Bible and say, who does the Bible actually say that God is? See, a party, I think Hugh Holter said this, is any social gathering where friendship is created. When I was first becoming a youth pastor, somebody pulled me aside and said, Matt, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. 
Man, that is so true of life, isn't it? Nobody wants to know that you're an expert in anything until they care that you actually have an interest in them. One of my friends, a guy named Cam Huxford, another preacher, he says, you know what? Refreshing friends don't try to change you, but they sure do refresh you. Okay, really quick question. Do you enjoy hanging out with people who try to change you? I am not talking about your spouse. Let's try this again, all right? Do you enjoy hanging out with people who try to change you? No, they drive you bonkers, don't they? They're always telling you why you're wrong, that the patriots aren't a dynasty. They're always trying to tell you who the best is, or if you would just do this, or this is why you need to change that. Look, I have been guilty. I'm a pastor and a preacher, and so I'm always telling people what to do, right? I'm guilty of this sometimes, but people don't want to hang out with people who have all the answers and always tell them what to do. You don't. It's one of the reasons why the church has an image problem. It was because people would get around us. Christians are really good at always telling others where they're wrong. People don't feel safe. But something about the way that Jesus carried himself made people feel safe. I wonder what might need to change in each of us to make those who are far from God feel safe. And I wish I knew more. I wish we could sit down and interview Matthew. All I have are the gospel books that tell us about the things that Jesus taught. For instance, how about this one? Luke chapter five, verse 30. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Do you hear the disdain in their voice? Why do you socialize with them? Verse 31, Jesus answered them. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I don't know why, one of my quiet times this week, I, I decided to read the book of Romans, and I just opened up to Romans. Romans chapter one is is a profound, profound passage. Because in essence, in Romans chapter one, Paul says that this world is a very dark place and that God has handed those who are far from him over to their desires. And so people naturally, excuse me, get further and further from God as they chase their desires because God says, if you really want a life apart from me, have it. Have whatever comes with it. Now the goal of that is that they'll carry the weight of their decisions, and finally say, this isn't working. Why isn't this working? God, is there more to the story? And then God could say, yes, I have a lot more to the story. But many people, as they travel further from God, they get more hardened and calloused in their heart towards God instead of saying open towards God. But then Paul pivots between Romans 1 and Romans 2, and he changes and he says, and oh, by the way, you who are reading this book, the Bible, you who are hearing this message, the church in Rome, you're no different. You're no better. Which would have been shocking because Paul's readers have been like, what? They said, see, many of you thought that you were better than them because you weren't doing the things they were doing. But what you failed to realize is that in the Old Testament, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of do's and don'ts. And if you don't do even one of them, then you're guilty of not doing all of them. Because see, God's standard was perfection, not good enough. And that's radically different. Because then when he gets to chapter three, he pivots again and he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All, me 
and the band included. None of us are perfect. But see, it's not just, yeah, well, none of us are perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. We all know that. What Paul is saying is, see, we are all desperately in need of a Savior. And in this situation, the Pharisees, the religious teachers, they think they're better than everybody else because their sins aren't their sins. And so therefore, they can stand in judgment and say, why does Jesus even eat and hang out with these kinds of people? To which Jesus responds, I'm here to call the sick. There's actually a little bit of a wounding, like, punch, kind of like pun thing going on here, because the point is, you need me as much as they do, but you don't think you do. I see the message then for all of us as Christians is, we desperately need a savior. And we are no better than anybody else when it comes to our sin. The difference between us and them is Jesus, and that's it, and it's enough. Oh, it's more than enough. It's everything you need, but they need it too. In fact, the word here for call, I've not come to call, is an interesting word. I got a C in Greek class. I'm probably going to botch this, all right? It's a C plus, just saying. But it's the Greek word kalisai. And according to William Barclay, it's the technical Greek word for inviting a guest to a house or to a meal. Isn't that fascinating? So the very word when Jesus says, I have not come to call the healthy but the sick. Jesus literally says, I have not come to invite to a party the healthy but the sick. Who invites a sick person to a party? No, but you get it, right? He's talking about the heart. He's not talking about the literal, physical, sick or healthy. He's talking about the heart. I have literally come to throw a party for those who are far from God, and I desperately want them to know me. And they all knew it. And they all felt safe with Jesus. Hugh Holter says, spiritual movement naturally flows from social connection, not the other way around. Uh, I have a friend who's a pastor, and I'll just leave it that vague in case anybody could pinpoint him. I have a friend who's a pastor, and somebody went on his Facebook page one day and responded to this kind of nasty statement. It was full of politics, but it's full of all the junk from today. And this kid, well, he's not a kid anymore, this adult, when he was a kid, he grew up in the church. So he knew God, he knew what faith looked like, but now he kind of walked away and he was just spewing venom. And my friend was about to go put him in his place. And I think that was actually what he said to me, to which I said, why? And he said, well, he put it on my Facebook page. I need to respond. I said, why? He said, well, because I can't just leave that out there because other people might read my Facebook page. I'm like, who cares? Like, if you really feel that passionate about it, just delete it. But no, I need to go correct his fallacy. I'm like, see, that's the problem. Everybody else watching this unfold won't have any idea if you guys are best friends or casual acquaintances. And this is what Christians do all the time. And we get baited in and we take the bait. And instead of having a healthy dialogue or a healthy conversation about things, we just immediately start lobbing grenades at people who are different or possibly, God forbid, wrong about something. But that doesn't come out of friendship and relationship. It just comes out of things being lobbed all over the place. And we wonder why people today don't feel as safe in our presence as they did in Jesus. Again, I think it was Hugh Holter said this. People tend to move from a party to a friendship, and from a friendship to a spiritual conversation, from a spiritual conversation to spiritual growth, and from spiritual growth to kingdom living. See, when you see it as a progression, as this movement, as this thing that happens in their life, then it changes because every conversation doesn't have to be the touchdown. You know what I'm talking about? 
You don't have to throw the Hail Mary on every play. You just have to move the ball down the field. You've got to be relentlessly intentional. You've got to be sacrificial and generous in your lifestyle. You've got to be kind and loving and merciful and drawing people into your life that you might win the right to even open the door to a friendship, that might earn the right to even telling the truth, that might earn the right to helping people to see just how good and freeing Jesus really is. Because when we lead with, you're broken, tends to not get heard real well. You know what you need to change? You know what's wrong with you? Instead of, hey, come follow me. Come follow me. I think it was Rhett that came up with this little thought. I thought it was good. If the grace that you received is not reaching out, then it has not fully reached you. Matthew, uh, Levi, same guy, in chapter 10 of his book, verse eight, he quotes Jesus, and I find it fascinating. This is the second part of the verse, if you go look it up later. But he says this, freely you have received, freely give. You freely received forgiveness, so guess what? Freely give Forgiveness. You freely received salvation, so freely give salvation. You freely received kindness, so freely give kindness. Peace, joy, generosity, love. Name one thing that you have received from God in your life and in your spiritual life that didn't come free. So then go do the same. Some ways that you can do this, by the way, uh, as a Christian is, you know, we throw big events like Trunk or Treat or whatever it is, uh, the women's conference coming up. When we do those kinds of things, to come and just invite people to come with you. By the way, we had so many thousands of people at our Trunk or Treat last year. We know this year we better up our game because if that many thousands of people are going to come, we better throw a better party. So we're going to throw a better party this year. Woo! You got to wait 10 months. Woo! I'm just <laughs> But that's not the only party. We're going to gather together this summer. and We're still going to host the uh, Avon uh, Rib Fest. And there's all kinds of things that we'll do. And when we do those, invite your friends. You can literally invite your friends to a Sunday anytime. There's a little yellow card in front of you that says invite on it. The intention of this card is just to give it to somebody, anybody. But don't just walk up to random people at work and say, hey, here you go. <laughs> Throw a party for crying out loud. It's the Super Bowl. I'm being serious here for a minute. Is there anybody in your life that you think to yourself, nobody would ever invite them to a party? You got about seven hours. The Super Bowl's tonight. What would you lose by texting them and saying, hey, you want to come and party with us? It doesn't matter if they're a Patriots fan, okay? God can forgive all sin. (laughs) In all seriousness, freely you have received Freely give. William Barclay says this, and I'll end with this. We must note what Matthew lost and what Matthew found. Remember, that's Levi. He lost a comfortable job, but found a destiny. He lost a good income, but found honor. He lost comfortable security, but found an adventure the like of which he had never dreamed. 
It may be that if we accept the challenge of Christ, we shall find ourselves poorer in material things. It may be that the worldly ambitions will have to go. But beyond doubt, we will find a peace and a joy and a thrill in life that we never knew before. In Jesus Christ, a man finds a wealth surpassing anything he may have to abandon for the sake of Christ. And to that end, I want to take a brief moment right now. We're going to sing a song. We're just going to celebrate the fact that God has freely given his grace and his mercy to us. And I just want to put this out there. Look, if you're visiting with us today or if you've been visiting with us, right now is a great opportunity for you to respond to that kindness, that grace, that mercy. Here's what you need to do. Just come. You don't need to pay off any debt. You don't need to earn anything. You don't need to buy anything. You don't need to fix something in your life first. You don't need to go back home and have a conversation. You just need to come. And when you come, we will introduce you to Jesus who throws the greatest parties this world has ever seen. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you for stories like Levi who radically show us what it means to throw a party in your name and in your honor. God, I know that there are men and women, children in this room right now. They're at Kingsway because somebody invited them. They don't know how they got here. They never thought of themselves as the church-going type, but yet here they are. And God, I just pray right now, something about today's message would just strike a nerve. They can't explain it. They can't put their finger on it, but they just feel you calling them, drawing them. And as they hear that voice, God, instead of hardening their heart or maybe just stopping where they are and saying, nah, nah, it's just something I ate last night, I pray, God, that they would just get up and move for reasons they can't explain. They would get up and they would move. They'd come down here and they'd talk to one of our Connect Team members and they'd meet you and find out just how good you really are. Thank you for being such a good and faithful God in spite of my sin and in spite of our sin. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name, all God's people said.